0: Please turn your Bibles to chapter 89 of the psalm. When you become a Christian, and God, in his word, makes many promises to you. He promises to answer prayer. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, it shall be opened. Seek, and you shall find. Everyone that asks, receives. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it, said Jesus. Many promises about answered prayer. He makes promises about material provision. He promises... Matthew 6.33 says, Don't be anxious what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of such things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Of course, He promises us salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, should not go to hell, but have everlasting life. Gigantic, precious promise. He promises us power over temptation. They have no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above, that you are able, but who will with the temptation also provide a way to escape, that you may be able to endure it. He promises guidance, that he will guide us with his eyes. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. He shall direct thy paths. He promises us the abundant life, whatever that is. He says uh, says that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He promises us certain things about our children. I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart from it. Many, many promises. Maybe you feel that you have met the condition of some of these promises and they haven't been fulfilled in your life. The psalmist wrestled with that. And we read here in this 89th psalm where a man by the name of Ethan, this is the only psalm that he wrote, but he writes struggling over what he feels to be a failure of God to fulfill his promise. We read elsewhere in scripture about a man by the name of Ethan who lived during the time of Solomon, maybe that same Ethan. He starts off his psalm with... Praise to God for his covenanted mercies. In verse 1, we have many verse that we use in a little chorus that we sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Notice his resolve to praise God for his mercies. Uh, The mercies that are in view are those uh, promised to David. God's faithfulness being that in the fulfillment of these promises. He rehearses uh, these promises in verse 3. He quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, where you have this promise that God made to David when uh, David was anointed king. Quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen, says the Lord, I have sworn unto David my servant, and here is then the content of the covenant. Thy seed will I establish forever, and build up thy throne to all generations. Now this is a summary of God's covenant. You notice that it consists of God promising to David that his posterity should not fail, and that the throne of his kingdom should in some mysterious way be established forever. So the psalmist Ethan says that he will praise God for his mercies promised in this covenant. Then he praises God for his majesty in verse 5. The heaven shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, and thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? The incomparable character and power of the Lord. Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord of hosts, who is a strong Lord, like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? God controls the universe. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab, that's a name for Egypt, in pieces, as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south thou hast created them. The great mountains, Tabor and Hermon, shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. So he praises God for his majesty. And then he praises God for his manifested favor to his people. In verse 15, Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. The people who know the joyful sound, the joyful sound is a reference to the sound that was made over the sacrifices, or possibly the sound uh, of the jubilee trumpet on the jubilee year. Every 50th year was jubilee. All inheritances returned to the original possessor, all ends. Every slave set free, every debt canceled, and of course these uh, things, the jubilee year, the Uh, sacrifices. These were typical things. They typified something. They symbolized something. They symbolized the Lord Jesus and his great salvation. He was the real sacrifice. He was the true Lamb of God that our sins would be laid upon. Uh, He was the one who would cancel all debts. He was the one who would set the slaves free. He was the one who would usher in jubilee. He's the one that would Give us an eternal inheritance. And so we're the ones who know the joyful sound. If we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, God the Son, become man, God in man, and that he died an atoning death on your behalf, he died for our sins, not for his own, but for ours, that that was the plan of God, whereby God, the Holy God, could forgive sinful people like us. And that you're trusting in him, as your way to God, you don't think that you deserve God's forgiveness, and you do not standing on your record. You're trusting Jesus Christ, and you're trusting God to forgive you as a sheer gift for Jesus' sake, that he died for you. And you purpose to obey, you're repentant, you acknowledge your sin, and you're seeking to obey. You've accepted me as Lord and Savior. Then you've heard the joyful sound. We incorporate it into a hymn. We've heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the news to every land, climb the steeps and cross the waves. Onward, tis our Lord's command, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's the joyful sound. And you walk in the light of his countenance. You've experienced that manifested favor. Well, there's the praise of God for for his covenanted mercies, for his majesty, for his manifested favor to his people. Again, uh, he reviews carefully now the promises of this covenant that God entered into with David. Verse 19. Then thou spakest in vision to thy Holy One. He's, he's referring again to Second Samuel chapter 7 and going through it in some detail where this promise is made. Thou saidest in vision to thy Holy One I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. The choice of David by God. Then he promises that David will conquer his enemies, the conquest by David. Verse 21, with whom my hand shall be established. And mine arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. My faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. This speaks of the extension of his kingdom. The limits of his kingdom would be extended. Verse 27, I will also make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth, that God would make David one of the great kings of the world, preeminent. And then the continuance of David's seed and David's throne, verse 28, my mercy will I keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. He promises chastening of his children if they disobey. In verse 30, If his children, his descendants, forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not com- commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. Uh, The constancy of this covenant. Now we see the praise of God for his mercy, his majesty, his manifest favor. These promises reviewed very carefully. Notice the problem. The problem is that the promises failed as far as Ethan could see. Verse 38, you have the contrast of the current situation with those promises as he sees it. Verse 38, but thou, God, thou hast cast off and abhorred, thou hast been wroth with thy anointing, the casting down of the throne. Verse 39, Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Uh, When did this take place? Uh, Well, uh, we mentioned that Anethan lived during the days of Solomon. And you'll recall that after Solomon, David's son was Solomon, and then Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Solomon disobeyed the Lord. He didn't walk with the Lord toward his latter days. He let his many foreign wives turn his heart so that he built temples to these various idols. And uh, God uh, told him that he was going to take the kingdom away from Rehoboam, his son, to some degree because of that. So when Rehoboam comes along, 10 northern tribes, 10 of the 12, revolt and set up a separate kingdom, which remained a separate kingdom until it was conquered by Syria and amalgamated with Assyria some 200 years later. So that Rehoboam only reigned, instead of reigning over all of Israel as David had, he reigned over the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. The capital city of Jerusalem was in Judah, and he reigned there. But you can see how that would seem to Ethan to not be what was being promised. As time uh, went on, of course, uh, you had the southern kingdom also uh, going into captivity in Babylon. The casting down of the throne, says Ethan. The conquest by their enemies. The promise said that David would conquer all of his enemies. But here is the conquest by their enemies. In the verse 40, Thou hast broken down all of his hedges. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all of his enemies to rejoice. They were conquering the kingdom instead of the kingdom conquering them. Wonder about your situation. You feel kind of like Ethan, maybe? That you tried to play the game straight and God didn't do his part. Now, you feel you've met the conditions. Let's say that you're a young lady here and you... You determine you would only marry a Christian man. The scriptures say that a Christian is to marry a Christian. All right, I'm only going to marry a Christian. And you pray very earnestly. And God brings this young man along. And he seems to be committed to the Lord. And you wait. And you pray earnestly. And you check. And you counsel. And you marry him. And you have children. And then three years after you marry, he walks off with another girl. What went wrong? God didn't keep his promise. Is that the way you feel? Or maybe you went into business and uh, you prayed very earnestly and you tithed, and you even tithed the profits of the business and you went bankrupt. Or maybe you uh, trained your child. As the Bible says, train up a child in the ways you go. And you, And there are no perfect parents, but you really worked at it and you felt like you did a reasonable job of it. But your son did go astray. And he's not walking with the Lord. You feel like Ethan, God, you said that if i train up my child the way he should go, when he grew old, he would not depart, and he has departed. And I did my end of it, God. What do you do when that happens? Well, you notice one thing you're allowed to do is you're allowed to say that, like Ethan says it here. He said, Lord, it doesn't seem right. I, you, Lord... What happened to this promise? Now, uh, he's writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and he expresses this. It's all right to express this. But you notice the tone in which he expresses it. It's not bitter. Uh, it's, uh, It's a humble spirit, not rebellious, struggling, doubting, coming to the Lord, seeking answers. What's the solution? Well, in Ethan's case, one aspect of the solution was he misread the promise. It wasn't an unconditional promise that no matter what happened, that David's descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel, the entire nation, until the end of time. An unconditional promise. It wasn't that way. David understood that it wasn't that way. When David was passing the torch on to Solomon. He charged Solomon to follow the Lord and to walk in his statutes and judgments. He said this to Solomon, That the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in the truth, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. David understood it was conditional. I know that aspect of misreading it was, that 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 promise, that covenant, had a dual meaning. It applied in one sense to David and his physical descendants. It applied in a deeper sense to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a deeper sense, he is the one who was chosen out of the people, who is mighty, who is the Lord's anointed. As you apply it to David... His successors did continue on his throne as long as Judah continued a kingdom. Judah continued a kingdom until 600 BC or 586 BC. And all that time, versus the northern kingdom, it was one family on that throne David's descendants. Always one family. Northern had many families, southern only David's family. And When it ceased to be a kingdom, when it went into captivity, 586 in Babylon, then later came back, but always after that, never had a king. Always ruled over by other nations, such as Greece or Rome, Persia. David's family even then continued. David's family continued over 900 years as a family. Until the real king came, Jesus. And when Mary was told by the angel that she was going to conceive in her womb the Son of the Highest, the angel made this statement to her. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he misread the promise. And second... They disobeyed the precepts. They didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. God's response when Solomon dedicated the temple and prayed that God would bless the nation and the kings of the nation, God's response was, If thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. Even when God tore away those northern ten tribes, he left a lamp in Jerusalem, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. He left that tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and the kingship there. So the promise and the prophecy stood fast, although it went by a circuitous route due to man's disobedience. It wasn't a straight, interrupted thing. You may have misread the promises. That child that went astray, did God promise that every parent who trained his child right, every Christian parent who trained his child right, that that child would not go astray? Is that promised? You say, yes, it is. Twenty-two six. train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Well, what did, what did you quote? I quoted Proverbs 22.6. That's a proverb. What's a proverb? A proverb is a general truth. The early bird gets the worm. That's a proverb. Does the early bird always get the worm? No, the early bird doesn't always get the worm. Sometimes there are no worms for the early bird. Sometimes an earlier bird got that worm. A proverb is not meant to be absolutized. You said, "But that proverb was in the Bible." That's right, which makes it a promise from God or a statement that God makes of a general proverb, or one that He incorporates it around and He incorporates it into His work. Okay, and still, it's a general truth. It's not meant to be absolutized. God never promised that every child that was raised in the correct fashion would walk with Him all of his days. You say, well, how do you know something like that? Well, for one thing, you just look at Scripture and interpret Scripture by Scripture. And you find there's some men in Scripture who seemingly raised their children right and they didn't turn out right. And then you look at church history and you find the same thing. Then you look around you at contemporary Christian society and you find the same thing. Read a book like Parents in Pain by John White, the Christian psychiatrist in Canada. They had like five children and they trained them all alike and... Four of them did great and one of them went way off track. Way off track. And you begin to realize, well, wait a minute. Uh, I may have been misreading this thing. It doesn't take away from the, from the fact that you can go before the Lord and say, Lord, you say this. He does say it. And it is a general truth. And I've been here 26 years. And I've seen it generally fulfilled. Let me tell you what. I've lived long enough in one place, in one pastor, administering enough folks to see that is a great general truth. And one that we can just rejoice over and go after. But not in every case does it prove out. Uh, that healing that you prayed earnestly for and believed God for, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and you prayed and you believed, and he didn't get well, or you didn't get well, or the person died. You know, every case just about where someone has died after a prolonged sickness, like cancer, someone in the family, or some loved one, some Christian close to that person has come to me and said, God has given me assurance that this person is going to get well. But they die. Now, uh, what went wrong there? Well, God never promised in his word that he was going to heal in every case where we exercised faith and believed that he would heal. Simply not promised. And if we read it that way, we can get ourselves in an awful lot of trouble don't want to minimize the fact that God does on occasion heal. And we should ask him to heal. But we need to be careful. Read the book, We Let Our Son Die, by Larry Parker. Larry Parker's is a church that occasionally would have a healing evangelist there. and They would go up and they would claim healing for their diabetic son. And uh, yet, each time uh, they would... They would take him off of his insulin, and uh, then the symptoms would begin to come, and they would put him back on the insulin. But this time, they had one there, and he was such a strong preacher, and they just, they were so stirred, and they were so, they just believed God had done it this time, and they claimed it, and they they, they said, God has healed our son, and the boy was convinced, and he went and told all his friends, I'm healed, 12-year-old boy, and so they took him off his insulin. But then... uh, the symptoms begin to come but they just decided that's the devil trying to mislead us and make us doubt God and so they would not go back and they buried their little boy in about a week and then they wrote a book we misread the promise don't misread the promise you may have misconstrued God's leading about something. Now, you may have thought God was leading you to do something, and he really wasn't leading you to do that. The Perimeter Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, when they started off, they, they saw a piece of property there on the perimeter, and they got all their money together. This young congregation, they put it all on that piece of property, $40,000 in and they thought God was sending the rest and they lost their $40,000. Read Lauren Cunningham, the head of Youth with a Mission, as he tells the story of putting all of theirs on a big ship and then not being able to make the second payment on the ship and losing the ship and all of their money. You may have felt God was leading you to do something. You remember the story about the fellow that uh, the flood came to his small town and. They were going around the boat getting people in. They came to his house. The flood was up to the windows, and they hollered, John, get in the boat. And he said, No, I'm trusting the Lord. He's going to look after me. And So they came back the next day, and he was up on the roof. The flood was higher, and they said, John, this thing had not crested. Get in the boat. And he said, No, I'm trusting the Lord. And the next day they came by. He was on the chimney. And they went in a helicopter, and they hollered down and grabbed the rope. John, this thing ain't crested yet. No, I'm trusting the Lord. And that night he drowned, and he went to heaven. And he said, I want to see the Lord. And they said, All right, you'll have to wait your turn. Finally, he got up there and he said, Lord, you led me down. I told everybody that I was trusting in you and you led me drown. The Lord said, John, don't blame me. I sent two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> well, we can misread what the Lord's saying. You may have disobeyed as they did in this particular case before us. Or God may be testing you. And God does promise us refining, doesn't he? He promises tribulation. You shall have tribulation. Read uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, the chapter on guidance. And somewhere in there he says something like this, The grace of God that led you out of darkness into light sooner or later will lead you out of light into darkness. Sooner or later, God will take you through a dark experience where you don't have any light. You don't understand what he's doing. And he will test you to see if you'll trust him in the dark. Well, we see the contrast that Ethan wrestled with between the current situation and those promises. Notice his call for divine intervention. He prays. And he says, God, do something now. Verse 46. How long, Lord, wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? And he calls for God to act. And certainly that's appropriate for us to do, to ask God to undertake and to change our situation. Uh, He bases it on the length of the condition. How long? He bases it on the shortness of his life. Verse 47. Remember how short my time is. Lord, I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> and then he bases it on the promise of God. Verse 49. Lord, where are thy former loving kindnesses which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Lord, I still feel like you promised this. But notice how it closes. Verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. He struggles, he can't understand. He sets before God the contrast between the promises and God's providence, the way things have fallen out. But he starts off resolved to praise God for his mercies and his majesty and his manifest favors, and he winds up the same way, blessed be the Lord God forevermore. And that's the thing to do. Notice, in a sense, our faith ultimately is not in the promises of God, it's in God. Our faith is in the God who promises. And I may not understand the promises, and the promises may seem to be failing, but God is faithful. And God is truth, and God is love. And my faith is focused on God in the ultimate sense. Notice uh, the importance of studying the Scriptures carefully understanding these promises, not misreading them or misapplying them, we get ourselves in a lot of trouble and others in a lot of trouble if we're not careful, if we do that. You notice the importance of suspending judgment, saying, well, I don't understand, but I'll trust. In uh, Oz Guinness's book, In Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt and How to Resolve It, he talks about the principle of suspended judgment. He says this is where the principle of suspended judgment operates, face to face with mystery. The faith that understands why it has come to must trust where it has not come to understand. Faith does not know why in terms of the immediate, but it knows why it trusts God who knows why in terms of the ultimate. Faith may be in the dark about guidance, but it's not in the dark about God. We may be in the dark about what God is doing, but we're not in the dark about who God is. And so we trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing. And it's important that we suspend judgment and not say, God, you failed to keep your promise. We say, it looks this way, God, but I trust you. Uh, you know, it's hard to suffer. It's hard to suffer without meaning But to suffer and not to press for meaning is another thing where we suspend judgment. Notice finally the importance of staying, grounding everything on Jesus Christ. This whole psalm centers in on this eternal kingdom that God will found and that the descendant of David will reign over forever. That was Jesus. He's the center of God's whole plan. He is the one through whom God enters into covenant with you and me. And while we don't know what God is doing, we know why we trust God who knows what he is doing. Why do we trust God? We trust God because if Jesus Christ was God the Son, and if he died for my sins, if God sent him into the world to do that, God so loved that he gave his Son, and the Son so loved that he gave his life as he did. Then, God is good. That settles the issue right there. God is good, and God loves me. And God's in control, and so I can trust him. In other words, doubts about the Father are silenced in the Son. And so we stay everything on Jesus Christ. Of course, you start by receiving Him into your life, surrendering to Him as Lord and Savior. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, maybe you've gone through some real period of doubt where you feel God has let you down. Maybe you've misread the promise. Maybe you've disobeyed. Maybe He's testing you. Maybe you misread His leading. Suspend judgment. Trust Him even though you don't understand what he's doing. You understand why you trust him. Affirm that. Give up the doubt of him. Maybe you've never really turned to Jesus Christ as that great king whom God sent to establish his covenant between himself and sinful man. You've never surrendered to that king and you've never trusted him to cleanse you of your guilt before a holy God. Start there. You can do that right now today. Your life can be changed through Jesus Christ becoming your king today. Pray in your heart like this, right where you are. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need the cleansing from your great sacrifice for my sin. I have heard the joyful sound that Jesus saves, and I believe it. And I trust you to save me. I surrender you as my King, purposing to obey, come into my life. Amen.